Welcome to the first episode of Trauma is a Journey. I'm Elizabeth Esty, your host for this special rural trauma miniseries of the Emergency Medical Minute. For me, this story unfolded this fall. I was in Denver. My husband was in Leadville, foliage biking with friends. Dylan called from Treeline Kitchen to say he just had the craziest bike ride and that he couldn't wait to tell me about it. This is a call I get from Dylan pretty often. He's just finished the hardest ride, the greatest ride, the prettiest ride. But this time it turned out to be true. It's an amazing story and one with a happy ending. It's also rich with teaching points and clinical and existential questions to ponder. We'll talk about the full arc of this case, from pre-hospital to transport to ED to air transport to hospital care and much more. There's something for everyone here. And this case shows that good critical care can be administered in spandex and bike shoes. We're so happy to have with us today most of the key players in this story. We have Drs. Glenda Kwan, Madison Macht, J.P. Brewer, and Dylan Loyton. And we're especially grateful to Jeremiah Grantham for traveling from Leadville today to join us. Dr. Glenda Kwan is a regular guest on the EMM. She's a trauma surgeon and surgical intensivist at Swedish Medical Center and director of the surgery residency program there. Dr. Madison Macht is a pulmonary and critical care physician at Centura, and happens to be married to Dr. Kwan. Dr. Dylan Loyton is an emergency physician and EMS physician and the medical director of the emergency department at Swedish Medical Center, and he happens to be married to me. He's also on staff at St. Vincent's Hospital in Leadville, where our story unfolds. Dr. J.P. Brewer is an emergency physician and EMS physician at Rose Medical Center in Denver. Jeremiah Grantham is a paramedic and director of the ambulance service at St. Vincent's Hospital. Deepest thanks to you all for taking the time to be here today. But first things first, tell us about the ride. Madison, J.P., Dylan. So the ride unfolded in the fall up at the uh, Tennessee Pass, which is about 15 or 20 minutes away from the town of Leadville. And it's a fairly iconic route, often referred to as the Dirty Copper Triangle, a mountain bike ride that goes up over three passes. And throughout the best views of, you know, that Colorado can offer. It it was punctuated with uh, losing uh, phones and finding them again with drones of bonking and uh, and of moments of exhilaration, probably a eight and a half hour ride. So it's funny, the rides that I've gone on with Dylan in the past, I generally end in me, uh, as Madison said, bonked in some capacity. They're always uh, way too big for me, and I'm overdone every time. This one was certainly no different, but uh, obviously it had a little bit of a different finale. It's funny, be- before we went out on this one, I had uh, Dylan and I had missed on a couple other attempts to go out on a ride, and I said something in a text along the lines of, you know, I think the mountain bike gods are holding out for a, for a really good ride for us at some point. So we just got to keep working to find one for the calendar. Yeah. First of all, I'd like to go on record by stating that I would never wear spandex on a mountain bike ride. <laughs> so I just would like that on the record. But uh, yeah, this was, a, this was an amazing uh, mountain bike ride with friends. As uh, Madison said, we'd been out for essentially the entire day. I think we ended up about 50 miles in about 8,000 or so vertical feet, much of it above tree line. really very spectacular. All these years, and I thought that was spandex. What, what was it? What is it? Well, there's rules about what you can wear on different types of riding. So mountain bikers wear baggy shorts and uh, baggy tops, and uh, road bikers or road cyclists would wear a spandex. 
Thank you. I've been thinking about this all wrong. So, and JP, the term, this term bonked may not be familiar. Does this mean you were tired? Uh, yeah. Um, the term bonk to me uh, refers to uh, not only, you know, at the end of your sort of capacity from a physical exertion, but there's also a, a, an emotional component to it too, where you just can't even keep up anymore and you're, and you're just spent and, and it makes you sad and you go into a dark place and, and all you want to do is put your legs up and eat food or drink beer. It's not physically dangerous. Not normally. I don't think it's physically dangerous. But I think it's relevant in the context of our story because the difference between a extensive mountain bike ride with emotional and physical toil and an extensive medical shift as a practitioner is very small. Those are extremely similar things, and ultimately we are training ourselves to do both simultaneously. Thank you, Madison. I should point out there were two other riders on this epic ride, uh, Shane Seitz, who is a real estate developer, and Peter Horner, who is a radiologist. And uh, apparently Peter Horner lost his cell phone. Yeah, I think relatively early in the ride, we kind of got down to a picturesque area, and and Peter had said something to the effect of, my phone is just gone. And so for you know the next... 40 miles or so, we, we joked with one another about whether or not it was going to be found, if it would be found, how much of a loss it was, and frustrations. And then as we're kind of limping back home in a line of, of people looking at the ground, we stumbled upon this phone, and it was it was serendipity. And, and so it was a light moment. It was definitely a, a pick-me-up. It wasn't as bad for Peter because he already has 10 <laughs> other electric devices attached to his bike, so the loss of one was not uh, as much of a loss. But I would say just finding a, a phone that has been lost uh, out of cell phone range, I might add, on the ground in the middle of nowhere is you know, literally a needle in a haystack. And this may strike our listeners as a boring subplot, but just for the purposes of our story, this added about 10 minutes to your ride. That's exactly right. It, it, it created a substantial pause right at the end of our ride, and that's an important piece. And we'll circle back to that. Jeremiah, I want you to set the stage for our listeners um, who haven't been to Leadville or don't know the St. Vincent's Hospital. Tell us about Leadville. Sure. Leadville is a, it's a phenomenal place. We're the highest city in the nation. We're surrounded by 14,000-foot mountains. Um, they're you know, very picturesque, uh, great mountain biking, hiking, very yeah, outdoor mecca, very much so, just like these guys are saying with the, the mountain biking and everything like that. But that also makes us very isolated. If, from an EMS standpoint, if we need more resources, they're far away. Uh, they're you know, 30, 40 minutes away, and uh, I've got two crews in town, and that makes it uh, that makes it difficult sometimes on these bigger calls to be able to uh, give, you know, needed care. Dylan, you work at St. Vincent's. Tell us your perspective. St. Vincent's Hospital is a critical access hospital, small. We have uh, basically five ER beds and about the same number of inpatient beds. We have a small radiology department, but lack for many resources of a, of a larger hospital. Leadville is, uh, you know, as Jeremiah said, really isolated. It is uh, 10,200 feet up in terms of altitude. It's surrounded by 14,000-foot peaks. And to get in and out of Leadville always necessitates going over a high mountain pass. And so to get back to Denver, you're either flying people, and, you know, as the crow flies, Leadville is about 75 miles from the front range, uh, and by ground, it typically takes a little over two hours to get anywhere. 
And there are definitely times uh, when you simply can't get out. You can go downhill uh, without going over a pass, but that does not take you to the front range uh, where the big hospitals are. So getting folks out of that community is a unique challenge. Thank you both. So back to the end of this bike ride, you've been riding for eight hours, six hours, maybe two hours? Yeah, close, close to eight and a half, uh, I would think. Everyone's tired. You're driving back. And and what happened? So we were on our way back. I was driving. Um, we, we had two vehicles and uh, about uh, five minutes away from uh, the trailhead where we had parked, there was a uh, clearly stopped cars. And I think we all have a, a sixth sense for when something isn't right. Uh, and although we've uh, all hit traffic, uh, something was very different about this. This was a, a large straightaway where cars could uh, travel rather quickly. It was It's flanked, as ever others have said, by uh, beautiful 14,000-foot uh, uh, peaks uh, to the right. And, um, and the sun was setting, uh, but something was very wrong. Yeah, I think um, to kind of tack on uh, that sixth sense commentary, you, you sort of, you know, we, we were we were in traffic. There was this line of cars, but just ab- in front of us, you could see where there were um, emergency vehicles, and and you know there was an assumption that there was some sort of a motor vehicle collision, and I think I don't know what it is, but you could sense that it would it had just happened. It wasn't a. It wasn't a. They're they're working through this and they know what's going on. It was a. This has just happened. Should we should we see how we can kind of help out or anything? So we we jumped out of the cars. We could see blue lights probably 150 yards in front of us, um, and you could see that there were uh, sheriff's deputies there who were turning traffic around. They'd shut the highway down. And uh, I was in one car with Madison, and I, I jumped out of the front passenger seat, and JP, you jumped out of the other vehicle. And we started kind of jogging our way up the side of the highway past cars. And we first encountered the sheriff's deputy, who um, obviously would not you know, be letting anyone into this accident scene. I could see that there was an, uh, nearly obliterated a subcompact passenger car, you know, car parts all over the highway, emergency vehicles there. Uh, they blocked off the highway with a ladder truck. And luckily, I was able to, you know, recognize the sheriff's deputy. I should say that I am the medical director for the EMS service up there at St. Vincent's, as well as the, the as well as the sheriff's uh, office. And I had just worked a 24-hour shift there the night before. So when we came off to start a ride in the morning. I'd, I'd been at that hospital all, all the night before and had sort of started the whole day a little groggy from, from that perspective. But anyway, I was able to look at this chef's deputy and kind of make eye contact with him. And of course, I'm wearing my, you know, baggy shorts and my, my bike shoes, and I've got, uh, you know, a, a t-shirt on, and I certainly don't look professional. But I recognized him, and he, thank goodness, recognized me, and I, I introduced myself. And and I said, hey, I've got, um, I've got physicians in the cars with me. Can you let this white Volvo station wagon and this red Forerunner uh, truck up into the scene? We ha- we can help. And he let us through. And JP and I uh, walked up to the actual into the actual scene. 
And I should, you know, pause for a second and say, I am an emergency physician. Obviously, I'm an EMS physician. I, you know, EMS medical direction is much of what I've done with my career for, for years. And I've done countless ride-alongs and been part of accident scenes many, 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 many times. So that's not totally unfamiliar. But this was unique in that it was very clear that we had patients who were actively dying. As I approached the car, this compact vehicle, there were two patients who were entrapped in it. There was a uh, probably middle-aged woman in the front passenger seat who was stuck kind of under the dashboard. Uh, The A A post and B post were kind of crumpled uh, over her. The roof was down on top of them. And in the driver's seat was a, a young adult male he was conscious and yelling and screaming, really. He was obviously in a lot of pain. And the woman in the front passenger seat was obviously in deep, profound shock. She was uh, eyes open. I would give her maybe a GCS of 9 or 10 at best and was breathing very slowly but was kind of white as a sheet and not talking. Madison, what was this like for you as a critical care doc who I'm guessing isn't on scene very often? Yeah, so arriving uh, on scene to uh, a multiple car accident with multiple uh, people in shock, uh, standing outside on the side of the road uh, wearing uh, arm warmers and uh, Yeti bike shorts is uh, a pretty uh, unusual experience. And I think from a critical care standpoint, my first thought was, you know, I'm out of my element and how do I help in the right way? And um, quite frankly, I thought a lot about my brother, who's uh, also an emergency medicine physician who's done EMS work. And I just thought uh, his voice in my head saying, you know, don't screw this up, because this is something that is fairly bread and butter from an EMS standpoint, but definitely not from a critical care standpoint. So I think trying to be uh, helpful um, is is important in trying to stay out of the way. And so I really was using guidance from my better trained uh, EMS colleagues at that situation. How many people were present on the scene? Anybody know? Or was it too chaotic? No, there would have been, uh, there was my two crews uh, from EMS, so there were four from that. I believe uh, Fire at least had four on that day. Uh, there was at least a couple police officers, um, and then Dylan and his crew. So, I mean, all told, close to 20, really. So a lot of people. A lot of people, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was uh, I would say, typically chaotic. You know, you yeah. had two uh, large pieces of fire apparatus that were being used to block the highway. You had a couple of uh, 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 law enforcement vehicles there. You had two ambulances. Each ambulance has a paramedic and an EMT on it. Uh, and then you had the fire personnel uh, there as well. So that's probably an accurate, accurate head count. Correct, which is our... That's our entire resources for the county. Right yeah, there. that is the That's entire the, county yeah, is right there. The entire thing on scene, on that one scene. Yeah. And so I remember as I approached, I, luckily I immediately recognized the paramedics. The paramedic recognized me. Uh, we kind of made eye contact. And I remember she said to me, we're trying to get a helicopter in, but we can't get through to dispatch. And I had a sense that was we were potentially slightly vapor locked at that minute. There was a there was a need to progress the the care forward and 
you know, standard procedure in that scenario, a, a remote or even, you know, I like the term austere environment with really very few resources. Uh, the, 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 the standard move is to get an helicopter down, you know, package the individuals with a, with, a, with a critical care team and the helicopter and fly them to definitive care. This was unique in that we were in a spot where, for whatever reason, the, we were not able to make radio contact and there is no cell, cell coverage there. It's not an option. So we were somewhat stuck. And I said, well, let's put them in the ambulances. We'll take them to St. Vincent's. We will ride in with you and then we'll figure it out. Interestingly, St. Vincent's is under construction. The hospital is very old and somewhat decrepit, and it is a, a new hospital is being built on the campus that hasn't yet opened, and so the, the campus is, is a construction zone, and you cannot land a helicopter at the, at the hospital right now it, because putting a, you know, a rotary wing aircraft down onto that construction site would basically generate shrapnel and missiles flying everywhere from you know, rocks and dust and everything. So I remember saying, well, let's tell them when we get through, we'll tell them to put down in the high school parking lot, which is, uh, what, a couple hundred yards, 200 yeah, yards. Yeah, it's a couple hundred the, yards from us. It's, it's not the ideal location, but for that scene, it was well worth it. It was workable. Um, and then at that point, we were just trying to sort of assess the patient through the doors, assess the patients through the doors of the, uh, of the vehicle. I should mention there was a third victim this was a highway speed head-on collision between a full-sized pickup truck and a small compact car. The driver of the full-sized pickup truck had self-extricated and was kind of standing or, 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 or sitting on the ground next to his truck, and he had you know, no obvious injuries and was awake and alert and would definitely be sort of triaged a green from that perspective, and I would say... We had the driver who was yellow to red, and then we had uh, the, the front seat uh, passenger, the woman, was clearly red and actively dying. At that point, the fire crew was able to cut the A post and the B post on the car, which if you don't, if you don't know, basically if you're sitting in the vehicle and you think of what is on the sides of the windshield, that's the A post. And if you reach behind you to put on your seatbelt, and that the post that's between at the back of the driver's door, that's the B post. So they have the jaws of life there, which are essentially these a combination of saws, pliers, and and uh, cable cutters, if you will. And they cut through that the uh, the hardened steel and pop the roof off. And we we're able to kind of pry first. We got we we're able to get the driver out, and we kind of hold him out, lay him down on the ground next to the vehicle. And it was a classic example of not being distracted by the obvious injuries. He had what appeared to be multiple long bone lower extremity fractures and uh, was in obvious, you know, severe distress due to pain, but was thankfully breathing and had a pulse and, and everything. And so I remember getting him out onto the ground and the crew went to get the traction splints, but it was, he had too many broken bones to address with traction splints and we had to get him packaged so I remember turning to the firefighter and saying do you have duct tape and we basically grabbed duct tape and sort of taped his ankles taped his knees taped his thighs together and I kind of directed the medics to put him in the back of a rig and JP you jumped in the rig with him so yeah be before before we go too far from that scene I just want to 
step back and, and think about the moment again in that Dylan, as you said, you're a, you know, EMS uh, physician have done a lot of ride along work. And Madison, you're sort of talking about how you work primarily in an ICU. And I'm, I'm an emergency physician as well. I've done some ride along work. I have some EMS experience, but it's nowhere near as substantial as Dylan's. And, and just echoing that concept of feeling immediately like this is a place that is out of control, um, uh, organized out of control, I guess. And the sights and sounds that were so sort of like in, imprinted upon me, like, the, you know, the, the vehicle was still hissing. There's smell of gas. There's the sound of these, uh, the jaws of life and, and sort of the, the dance, the chaos that's going on. And it was, it was one of these moments of, I know I have a certain set of skills. I'm not exactly how to deploy them in this situation, but I, I definitely think I can do something here. And thankfully it was, it was kind of Dylan's direction and, and, and Dylan's ability to help sort of organize things. And he kind of looked at me and said, this is your patient now, go with this patient and get in the ambulance. And so that's what I did. And I, I helped I helped get into the back of the ambulance with this critically ill gentleman. There were, I think, two EMTs and then a firefighter who got in with me. And that was that was sort of my scene experience. I have a, a quick question for you, Jeremiah. What if your crews had all of Lake County's resources had been there on the scene and five, four physicians or so-called physicians and a real estate developer came on not wearing form-fitting bike clothes, but more of an elegant, free-flowing bike clothes, and said, we're doctors, we're here to help, what would you have done? Normally, I, I was speaking about this earlier with someone else, and uh, normally it's it's something that we have happened, but not, you know, ER physicians, uh, people that can actually help us. It's, you know, somebody comes on scene, hey, I'm a doctor, can I help? What kind of doctor? I'm a podiatrist. Well, thank you for offering, but, you know, not really helpful. In this case, it's you know, Dr. Lloyden and, you know, a couple of the ER physicians and critical care physicians in this case. And it's, it's an experience that we don't usually have to actually have that help. Um, and it, it was incredible that that was there. But, but if you didn't know them, would you have asked the police to turn them away? I mean, do, do you, in this day and age, do you believe everyone who says, hey, I'm a doctor? Not necessarily. No, I, I don't mm -hmm. think we would have turned him away. I think that would have been the question is, you know, hey, I'm a physician. What kind of physician? I'm an ER mm -hmm. physician. I'm a critical care pulmonologist, I believe. Is that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and those are useful to us. And so in that case, then if uh, if you can show some uh, expertise in that field and, and we're okay with that, then absolutely. We'll, we'll take that help anytime. Yeah. I'm also curious about your comment, uh, Madison, that you just wanted to not mess things up. Right. I think what Jeremiah is referring to is, you know, with all due respect to my colleagues, you know, a, a, a seasoned rheumatologist at the scene might not have had the skill set to manage that. And my field, uh, you know, pulmonary and critical care medicine does border on the pre-hospital setting, but it doesn't encompass it. And I think that's the important part is that one of the hallmarks, I would imagine, of good resuscitations and EMS managements is uh, somebody like Dylan, in this case, who is in charge uh, managing and putting the, the spokes of the wheel, if you will, you know, in place so the wheel spins true. And, and that was my uh, sense, is that I was going to wait in the wings to do something that was germane to pulmonary and critical care, like a, a needed airway or an IV or 
a set of hands at any moment, but also not to um, come with the bravado or uh, conceited feelings that occasionally encompass other critical care uh, environments um, to think that we can save everything right at that moment. I would echo that in, in that, you know, I, I do work in an emergency department. Um, I interact with pre-hospital providers a lot. And I, I think I'm pretty good in rooms one and two and in the back of the department, but I'm less good in a moving ambulance with a scary looking patient who's very uncomfortable and I don't know where I am. So that, that concept of like, I've got something to add here, but I don't want to get in the way is a very real one. Glenda, how... How could these people, there, let's count the ways they could have screwed things up. What could have gone wrong here? Um, I think that you can uh, under triage these patients. You could fail to recognize uh, the ongoing blood loss. Neither of the patients had open fractures, um, but both were in hemorrhagic shock. Uh, their bleeding was internal um, to their uh, fractures and also uh, intra-abdominal injuries. And I think uh, these guys showed up on scene, immediately recognized that these people were in extremis and um, needed to be evacuated from that scene and then transferred to somewhere where they could have definitive care. And I think underestimating the patient's injuries uh, would certainly have had this story end very differently. And is that easy to do? Do you see patients often who've, whose injuries have been underestimated? Oh, sure. And, you know, sometimes on the scene, again, we've described the chaos of the scene, and it's not unusual to be distracted by things like obvious fractures um, and forget that patients lose a lot of blood in their chest and their abdomen. And so it's important to, I think Dylan uh, mentioned about sort of triaging people based on their, their and color, and I think they did that very accurately. They were able to understand that although there wasn't a lot of blood on the ground, that these patients were uh, bleeding and um, were, you know, not going to be alive for very long if uh, action wasn't taken. Jeremiah, how many times a year do your crews come upon scenes like this that must be incredibly stressful and more stressful given that it's not, as for Glenda and these ER and pulmonary docs, routine? Not, not terribly often. Uh, this is not the, the largest uh, accident levels I've ever seen or like times I've ever seen. Um, We've had larger for sure, but this is one of the more severe ones, um, and we don't get those very often. We get a lot of car accidents, but not to this level of severity, where you know we actually have people that truly need to fly from scene, truly need to get definitive care, um, and things like that. Yeah, I, I uh, first of all, just great respect to the entire EMS crew, crews, you know, that were there. It was. Uh, cannot be stated how, how chaotic and distracting it was, everything going on. And I think when you look back at it, I would estimate our scene time was probably 10 minutes at the most. And that involved, you know, prolonged extrications and everything. It was very time compressed. And I think the, it's just incredibly important for us as, you know, people involved in emergency care to be reminded of just how difficult these scenes are, you know, how difficult it is to bring kind of uh, organization to this level of chaos. And I would say too, like 
we've all had the like, is there a doctor on the plane? Or we've all like come across, you know, someone faints in line in front of you at the grocery store or, or you're coming along and you, you happen across a car accident. I mean, I've had all of those things before. And I think as JP and I were jogging down the highway, I don't think either of us expected anything would happen. I, I thought, you know, I'm going to come up there. Everyone's going to be like, we're good. We're good. Everything's good. Need any help? Nope, we're good. And then we would get back in our cars and, and, and go go have a beer. But um, this was different. From a crew perspective, too, we were hugely appreciative of you, of you guys being on scene. Also hugely appreciative of realizing that you needed to get these patients definitive care and not staying and playing on scene. Some physicians like to uh, do a lot of things on scene and not get to the hospital. You guys realized very quickly that uh, that's what needed to happen was to get these patients to definitive care, and that was very much key. I think that's one of the things that really emerged uh, from this whole story, and I'm sure we'll touch on it again. Somebody made the analogy that trauma is a journey, and we needed to say, here we are, and this is where we're going. And everything about this case is how we we advance people along this journey. And there you have it. Not unlike a grueling mountain bike ride, trauma is a journey. Our patients have a long, arduous path before them. And the physicians and other members of the trauma team, like backcountry guides leading an expedition, must move them along in their journey from initial resuscitation to definitive care and, ultimately, to recovery. In the next episode of Trauma is a Journey, we'll talk about progression of care and patient stabilization as this crew of mountain biking docs accompany their patients to St. Vincent, a critical access hospital in Leadville, Colorado to prepare them for transport to Swedish Medical Center, a level one trauma center in suburban Denver. Tune in to hear what was going through the physicians' heads and learn more about the extent of our patients' injuries, how they were treated during transport, and the crucial role of teamwork in their care.